<laughs> I'll just use the glove. You should be all right. <clears throat> well, good morning, church. I hope everyone can hear all right, and uh, good morning to everyone who's joining us online. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to open them to Matthew 57, Matthew 26, verses 57 through 68. This is the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Matthew 26, verses 57 through 68. Then those who had seized Jesus led Him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following Him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, He sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put Him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ who is it that struck you? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that You would glorify Your name this morning as we look to Your Word and the trial that You endured. None of it was righteous. The only righteous part of this trial was You. Lord, thank You that You would endure this for our sake. And Lord, I pray that You would bless us this morning, that You would be with us, that You would write Your Word on our hearts, Lord, and encourage us, that You would get glory for Your Son, the Christ, that You would prepare us, God, for life in the fallen world, and that above all, You would be honored and glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Help us, Father. Amen. Human beings are almost universally fascinated with trials. In the past, trials have received the attention of entire nations, haven't they? They've been international phenomenon sometimes. Uh, especially today, it seems that at any given moment, you can turn on the news network and there is a high-profile a high proceeding being broadcast. We ha uh, they have an incredible capacity to arrest our attention. But of all of the trials in human history, all of them, none, have gathered more attention or been more significant 
Then the trial, thank you, we have just read about in the Gospel according to Matthew. The trial of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Sanhedrin, the leaders of Israel, the priests, and the elders, they come together to sentence and condemn our Lord to death. Now, they should have been the first ones to receive Him as the Messiah. But instead, they put Him on one of the most absurd and irrational trials that's ever been, ta- ever been held, ever taken place in the entirety of the world. And I want us to see four things. So I'll give you a countdown if you're starting to get cold. Four things from this so-called trial. One, the injustice of the adjudicators. Two, the silence of the Savior. Three, the cruelty of Caiaphas. And four, the judgment of Jesus. And the first is the injustice of the adjudicators. This, I don't know what you would call it. It's, it's not a trial. It's, it's, a, it's a murder with a veneer of legality. That's what, this, that's what is happening here. But, but the fact is, everything about this so-called trial is illegal. Everything. Even by their standards. They break the rabbinical law. They break the traditions. They break the Mosaic law. All in the name of upholding it with the goal of murdering the Son of God. For one, no capital trial was ever to be held at night. It had to be held during the day so it couldn't be kept secret. This was a life that was in line. Second, they weren't allowed to execute a man on a feast day, which is what they are hurrying to do, to put Jesus to death on the feast day. Third, his arrest was a result of a bribe. That itself, even in the ancient world, was enough to have his, uh, his trial declared a mistrial by the judge. Fourth, Jesus is asked to incriminate himself. Fifth, sentencing in the Jewish law had to wait until the day after the accused had been convicted. And sixth, listen to this, this is from Deuteronomy 19.16, it says, If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute will appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the false witness has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. False witnesses were supposed to be put to death. And yet here, there are many false witnesses. In fact, false witnesses are being sought out by the crowd, by the, by the Sanhedrin themselves, and they have no scruples or hesitation whatsoever to lie about the Lord even though according to the law it should cost them their lives. The Sanhedrin should have sentenced every false witness to death, and yet they were lining up to condemn Him. Can somebody get that for me, please? (laughs) Thank you. You can add to that, there was no formal charge against Jesus. He was not given a defense. The high priest intervened in the proceedings, and almost certainly all of his legal rights were trampled on that night. And all of this to say, just to make it obvious, there were no intentions from the beginning 
of giving Jesus a fair trial. They weren't motivated by justice. They were motivated by pride and by envy. Right? People were, were siding with Jesus during His ministry and against them. The, the Sanhedrin were losing popularity. They were being exposed as frauds. Their sins were being aired out by Christ. Their so-called righteousness was being dismantled. Their, 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 the opinion the crowd had of the Sanhedrin was falling rapidly. And the Sanhedrin couldn't handle it. They saw themselves as paragons of virtue before the people, and they were being uncovered by Christ as unprincipled lowlifes. And they couldn't stand it. And the only thing they could do to, to uh, patch up their wounded pride was to kill Jesus. And they'd made up their minds. Earlier in Matthew, we read, they've made up their minds. They are going to kill Him. And one of the things to understand is that when people make up their minds... They will readily accept false witnesses and run Rudshaw over whatever justice is demanded. They will accept false claims, false accusations, because their mind is already made up, and once that happens, the only thing that matters is confirmation. The Sanhedrin were believing, made up their minds to only believe what they wanted, and they disregarded all evidence to the contrary. That's one of the, the hallmarks of worldliness according to James. James says Christians, as opposed to the Sanhedrin, should be yes, solid on the Word where the Bible speaks. They stand, but on matters that are not so certain, James, calling Christians to wisdom, say that they are open to reason. Right? They're not closed. They're open to reason, to hearing and seriously considering what he or she may not immediately agree with or believe at first. So if it's clear in Scripture, the Christian must be inflexible. If it's not so clear, there has to be degrees. The fool is the one who has made up and closed his mind. And so there is a warning here for Christians not to fall into the same self-confirming camp the religious hypocrites did. But the greatest warning for the Christians in this passage is to recognize if they treated the Lord so unjustly because He was righteousness from God, they will likewise treat His believers that way. He says it multiple times throughout the Gospel. If they've treated the Master like this, how much more the servant? If they've treated the teacher this way, how much more the student? And in a fallen, hostile world, truth and honesty are not guaranteed. Justice is not guaranteed. And, and although righteousness one day will prevail, it's not guaranteed until our Lord returns. And we have, by and large, enjoyed for a long span of time a blessing where truth, right, objective truth, what corresponds to reality, that's been the main way the people around us have viewed the world. What's true is true. We want to know the facts. We want to know the order of events. We want to know what happened. And we didn't want it made up. It wasn't like that in Jesus' day. And it wasn't like that in the past. And it's becoming increasingly less so in the present. Consider Stephen, the martyr in the first century. He spoke with a wisdom his opponents could not deny. His face shined like an angel from heaven. When his enemies saw this and realized they couldn't beat him in an argument, the only thing they could do was stone him until he was dead. Or, this is one of my favorite examples from history, is that that of St. Athanasius. He stood against the whole religious world in the 4th century to defend the deity of Christ against 
the Arians who said that Jesus was just a creature. He was created. Well, Athanasius found himself repeatedly accused of false atrocities. For example, on one occasion, his opponents bribed a certain bishop to go into hiding, and then they accused Athanasius of murdering this bishop, cutting off his hand, and then using that hand to practice sorcery. They, they even had a, a hand with them, his opponents, claiming, this is the hand. Well, Athanasius' friends, and he had a lot of loyal friends, they heard about the accusation, they went, they found the bishop, who was both alive and still had two perfectly functional hands, they brought him to the trial, put him forward, Athanasius, uh, he asked them, would you recognize the man if he were brought forward? And they all agreed, and so he had him brought in, and they all recognized him. And then Athanasius, revealing one hand, he reveals the one hand and says, was this the hand that was cut off? And he reveals the other hand and say, was this the hand that was cut off? And then he asks them, from where did this then third hand come? And in spite of it all, he lost the trial. Is being tried for murdering a man. His defense produced a man very much alive, and he still lost. Because suffering injustice in this world is just par for the course for everybody in this world, not just for Christians, but especially for Christians. So if you want to be faithful, you will suffer for it, even in the courts. So don't put your hope and trust in human institutions and systems. At one point, they were more reliable. But this is, you have to understand, an anomaly in a fallen world. Now, God can work through them, and He does work through them. We should pray that He works through them, and thankful that He very often has. But let's not take that for granted. And let's not place our trust there, but recognize where our trust and hope comes from, from Him. Christians will suffer injustice in this world. <clears throat> and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you're in good company. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.21, you are walking in the footsteps of Christ. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you may follow in His footsteps. Second, the silence of the Savior. Jesus is silent before His enemies. This is shocking when you read about it, isn't it? All the chaos unfolding around Him, the questions and accusations being hurled at Him, and He doesn't say anything. He's silent before his accusers. He's not interjecting whenever some, they say something wrong or they say something untrue. I think about ourselves. Whenever we're arguing with somebody and they start saying things that aren't true, what do we do? We leap to our defense. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even correct the two false witnesses. They claim that Jesus said he would destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days, but he never said that. He said to his accusers, destroy this temple, referring to himself, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And even if he was referring to the temple, he didn't say he would destroy it. He said they would destroy it, and then he would rebuild it after it's been thrown down. So the accusation against him was wrong. And yet, in spite of it all, Jesus doesn't say a word. His silence shows us three things. Obviously, it shows his contempt for the court. He doesn't dignify what they're doing with the response. It's a sham, and he will not participate. It shows the injustice of what's happening. 
He doesn't have to say a word. They're making fools of themselves. And the longer he lets them go, the worse off it becomes. Second, it shows the fulfillment of prophecy. You can't read this passage and not think of Isaiah 53 where it says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter or a sheep which is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. It fulfills prophecy. But third, and most importantly, the reason he remains silent is to show his willingness to die and to die for us. Imagine if you had been there and you were one of Jesus' first disciples and you heard the slanderous, baseless lies being flung towards Him. What would you have done? Right? Sat down quietly contemplating about everything that's being said? No, you knew their testimony was untrue. You would have said something. You would have told Jesus to say something. Tell them, Lord, they don't understand. They don't know what they're talking about. Catch them in their folly. Vindicate yourself and embarrass them like you have so many times before. Because He could have. He could have spoken to them, the Lord, in such a way that by the time the sun came up over the horizon, every man there would have walked out of that hearing with their heads hung low, ashamed. He could have spoken like that, but He doesn't. He is silent before His accusers. He will not stand in the way of injustice being done to Himself. He lowers all of His defenses so that He can fulfill the will of the Father and redeem a people who would have nothing to say in their own defense. You see, on the final day when all men stand before the judgment seat of God, they will be unable to defend themselves. There will be no answer they can give. The constant testimony of Scripture is that every mouth will be closed up. No defense able to be given. Why? Because the all-seeing Lord, before Him, there is no defense to give. He is there when every guilty action is undertaken. And so if Jesus is going to endure the curse Right? The curse that His people are due, if He's going to endure the judgment that they are due, He cannot defend Himself. He cannot defend Himself like someone who was found inexcusably guilty. He cannot defend Himself as someone who was caught red-handed. He cannot defend Himself as one who is, whose guilt is so obvious He has no defense to give. The reason he must be silent is because he is dying for an indefensible people. And not just dying for them, but dying as them. And even though all accusations against Him are false, He bears them as though they are true. Because He who knew no sin became sin for us. And so is silent. It's not just out of contempt, and it's not just to fulfill the prophetic word, but it's to show His love for you. That He is the substitute, the scapegoat, the atonement, the, the representative and the perfect sacrifice for His people. He's not willing that any should be spared. And so He willingly lays down His life in your place. The silence outrages Caiaphas. And here we encounter Caiaphas's cruelty. The trial is not going in his favor. By this point, he's furious. He's, he's raging at the assembly. Is there any of you two who can get your story straight? Remember, he's lashed out at the Sanhedrin before in Luke's Gospel. He calls them all fools. Tells them it's better for one man to die 
than for the whole nation to be swept away. Certainly, he would have no concern to rail against them here with the, with the situation slipping from his fingers. That's the kind of person he is. You can almost see him wringing his hands. He's, he's so close. He has Jesus right there, captured in chains. But now the, the prosecution's beginning to argue amongst themselves. They can't get their stories straight. All right, what began as a farce is quickly becoming unsustainable. It's reaching the point where everybody's ready to call it quits and go home. Their tails between their legs yet again. But then Caiaphas reveals the shrewdness for which the Romans had undoubtedly made him high priest. It was not legal, of course. Nothing of this so-called trial was legal. The high priest was not allowed to intervene. But with the whole case dissolving before him and his best and only shot at condemning the man escaping, he has a, a cruel stroke of political genius. He breaks all conventions and he turns to the prisoner and demands an answer with the most sacred oath in Israel, the oath of the testimony. He says, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He doesn't only ask if Jesus is the Messiah. That's no crime. There were many who claimed to be and quickly proven false. But neither does he ask if he is the Son of God. This was a, a frequent title of the prophets, like Ezekiel. He asks both together, and what he is asking Jesus under oath is this, Are you the Messiah who is God? If he says yes, he can be convicted of blasphemy, a crime that carries with it the sentence of death. So now Jesus must answer. Though he's not obliged to give testimony against himself, no pious Jew in Israel would refuse such a solemn charge. He has to give an answer, but not only for piety's sake. The trial is slipping away. He is on the verge of being delivered. Soon his enemies will have exhausted themselves and go home. Jesus will not allow it. And so now, he breaks his silence, not to defend himself, but to condemn himself. Never forget that Jesus here is the one in charge. Not for one second does this mob have any power over him. Not Pilate, not the court, not the high priest, none of them. He is the one who is laying down his life, and he is the one who is giving himself into the hands of his enemies for that very purpose. So he tells them, you said so yourselves. And I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. He confesses it's true. He is the Messiah who is God. Now they have ample witnesses. Now they have everything they need to condemn Him. They've heard it themselves. It sends the high priest into a fury of hypocrisy. He tears his robe as though he is outraged and grieved over what he considers blasphemy, even though he is rejoicing inside. Jesus has condemned himself. It's the only words he speaks in this whole trial, and they are to his own demise. Now, having summarily condemned him, they unleash their cruelty. They blindfold him and they strike him. They pull hair out from his beard. They mock him and they spit in his face. Listen to this. They spit into the face. They strike the face that smiled upon the crowds of people as he told them to love their enemies. 
The face that beamed with compassion as He poured out healing on the sick and the lame. This is the the testimony of Christ in the land. The face that could not restrain itself from breaking into a smile at the approach of a child and looked graciously on penitent tax collectors and prostitutes. The face that was outraged at the desecration of the temple and furious at the extortion of widows. And above all, the face from which shone the glory and perfected holiness of God. This is the face into which they are spitting and into which their fists were striking. It was onto this face that they unleashed their cruelty. The very face of God. But... Unless they would repent. It would not be long before they would see this face again. But this time, they wouldn't be spitting or striking. This time, they would cry out for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. Because, listen, the Lord's answer, it was not blasphemy. It wasn't a judgment either. It wasn't even a warning. Jesus' words to the Sanhedrin in this moment are a threatening. They will see the judgment of Jesus the Christ. The next time they would see Him, they would be the ones on trial. He quotes from Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, you, you find the courtroom of God. And in this courtroom... One is seated who is called the Ancient of Days. And all of the nations, we're told, are are gathered together before Him for justice. And then one comes riding on the clouds who is called the Son of God, or the Son of Man, who who sits at the right hand of God and and casts His judgments on the nations. Let let me read what Daniel 9-14 through says. This is what Jesus quotes. He says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took His seats, and His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of His head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire issued and came from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Verse 13, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom." that all peoples and nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. They tell, he tells these people, the Sanhedrin, He is the Son of Man. He tells the Sanhedrin, This will not be the last time I see you in court. But the next time, our roles will be reversed. And you will see me sitting at the right hand of my Father, and I will be casting the sentence on you. But that time, it will be just. There'll be no chaos. There'll be no secrecy. There won't be any false witnesses. It's not going to take place under the cover of darkness. And just as Jesus was silent before them, they will tremble voiceless when He is revealed in His majesty. You know, these leaders are not unlike millions in our own day. They hear the claims of Christ. 
They hear the Gospel. They hear His law and how they've broken it. They hear who Christ is, but they reject Him. They won't hear it. They've made up their minds. They do not want their sin to be exposed. And one of the worst sins of self-righteousness reigns when a person says, I'm really not that bad or my sin is no big deal. And though they hear the word of the testimony, they will not investigate for themselves. Now, I remember once I spoke with a young man who was living in a country that is hostile towards Christianity. You're not, you're not allowed to have a Bible in this country. And uh, he was here, and I was sharing the gospel with him. And he, he said, he, he, took a, he asked for a Bible. I gave him one. He said, if what this book says is true, I have to believe it, even though it will cost me everything. I have to read it and see for myself. He realized what it meant. If the Word of God was true, his soul was at stake. He had to see for himself. And and my prayer for you is that you would have the same care for your own souls. At the very least, have the good sense to investigate and see if the claims of Christ are true. See, is He who He says He is? Open up the book. Or have you hardened your hearts and made up your mind already? And even though you say you're seeking truth, you're no more seeking the truth about Jesus than this Sanhedrin was at His execution. But that's the question. Have you considered the claims of Christ? It's not going to be Him on trial when you see Him. He's going to be seated at the right hand of God. It's not going to be Him on trial when you see His face. It's going to be you who's standing before Him. And you will be the one to give an account. And the question on that day will be, what have you done with Him? Have you believed? Have you placed your faith there in Him? When that day comes, it's going to be too late. It's appointed once for man to die and after that the judgment. But when the judgment comes, your eternal destiny, right? It depends on today. Eternal life in paradise with God. Eternal suffering in hell apart from Him depends on what you do and say of Christ. Is He the Messiah He claimed to be? And if He is, have you repented and put your trust in Him? Has He taken your place in the judgment? Or will you side with the Sanhedrin and with Caiaphas and with Judas? Make up your minds, but don't go on being neutral. The day is going to come when the tables will be turned and it will be as clear as the sun shining on a bright cloudless day who Jesus Christ is. But at that point, it's going to be too late. Today is the day of salvation. And today is the day to repent, turn from your sins, to surrender your life to Him, and to put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ. There is no hope for man apart from this. Jesus endured the curse and the trial so that all who put their trust in Him won't have to. But those who go on rejecting Christ have rejected the only salvation that God has given. My prayer is it wouldn't be anybody here today who's hearing my voice or listening online that you would put your trust in Him. That He would be your substitute and you wouldn't go on 
and die in your sins and have to give an account when you see Him face to face. I pray that it would be a day of great joy for all of you and not a great of fear, not a day of fear. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give, give, Lord, the grace to come to you, to these people who hear my voice this morning. That you would be glorified, Lord, by preparing them to live in this world and face injustice. Lord, to glorify in Christ for having been silent in our place. To be prepared to face the cruelty of a hostile world. And to always keep before their eyes the judgment seat of God where all will give an account for the life lived in the body. Thank you, Father, that you have prepared a way and not left us hopeless, but have given us a great unfading hope that can never be, never be taken away or changed. And it's to you we give thanks, and to you we give glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Let's conclude with the words of the song of New Doctrine.